Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Apple driving lower, down 2.4%. What's interesting is that Wall Street analysts, notorious for their bullishness, have turned bearish largely about Apple uh, and haven't been as pessimistic about Apple in a very long time, multi-decades. Joining us now, John Butler, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence uh, here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So, John, why have Wall Street sell-side analysts gotten so bearish on Apple? Honestly, Lisa, I think it's a whole subset of factors at work right now. Um, you know, we're still in the midst of this trade turmoil with China. And I, my concern is that, you know, some of the tensions we've had with, with Beijing and some of the issues with Huawei have fueled nationalist buying sentiment among the Chinese consumers. And keep in mind that China is well over 19% of Apple sales in any given quarter. So it's a big, important region for them. And I think if we continue to see weakness there stemming from that nationalist sentiment, uh, that's an issue. And also, I think that the departure of chief designer Johnny Ive is is a big concern, you know, because, well, he was the face of the brand, you know, whenever they launch new iPhones, uh, Ive is front and center in presenting the new product. He is an industrial designer with, um, you know, a real focus on every little detail. And so the question is, can the new team that's taking over that was trained by him uh, really fill those huge shoes. And I think there's a question mark around that. And so, you know, it's just, and you couple that with the with the mature status of the, the smartphone market itself. The global market looks like the PC market. You know, it's growing low single digit in a good year. And so, you know, the question is, will Apple make that pivot to services? I think yes. But how quickly is really on people's minds right now? So yeah. I think it's all those factors. Just to give you a sense of the names behind this, Rosenblatt Securities downgraded the company to sell today, uh, joining New Street Research and HSBC, which had previously lowered the ratings on the stock to sell uh, in April and in January. And also on the iPhone, just to give you a sense, more than 60% of Apple's revenue last year uh, was related to the iPhone, 20% coming from China. Key question for people who want to feel a little bit bullish on Apple uh, after a 27 and half percent gain so far year to date. What could drive the company higher at this point? So a couple of things. Number one, it's a cyclical growth story now. I think people have been sort of slow to realize that those glory days of sustained quarter in and quarter out growth for Apple is over. 
they're going to have good years and bad. And we're currently going through a tough year in terms of iPhone sales. But I think we're going to come into a good year or the advent of a good year, let's say, for iPhone sales starting a year from September when we see what I hope will be the first 5G iPhone hit the market. Um, so iPhone sales are tough right now. We'll get into next year. The comps begin to ease because they'll be the the growth will be in comparison to this year, which so far has been very difficult. Yeah, the bar will be lower. So the bar be will be lower. It Thank you. A little bit more easily, and uh, we'll get that new 5G phone hopefully. Talking about 5G and talking about networks, there was another bit of tech news that I'd love to get your views on. Uh, there was a rumor that Google was in the running to acquire Dish Network, uh, possibly part of Dish Network, to create that fourth carrier. Uh, And this comes as T-Mobile and Dish were trying to have a tie-up with the antitrust concerns there. Google now denying it? What's the latest? Am I butchering this? So this is interesting to me because Google has (laughs) flirted with the wireless market before with Google Fi, which is... Basically, their wholesaling uh, network um, carriage from AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, from a major carrier, I'm reselling it as Google Fi. So they have an interest in the business. They've toyed with it. Could they become a carrier in partnership with Dish, or would they have an interest doing so? Maybe. My my first thought when I saw the news was, though, why would they want to become so heavily regulated, right? Because Google or Amazon or whoever, they've both been rumored. If you get into the wireless business in a big way, you're, you're, you're threatened with regulation by the federal government, right? Because telecom is a regulated business. Wireline more so than wireless, but I think in coming years, wireless is going to become more heavily regulated. And so I don't know why they would want to step into that world, but from from that angle, but then again, they're an ad company. And if you believe the internet is going mobile, which I do, internet advertising is going mobile. So if you actually own the subscribers, you can get a lot of data from that subscriber base, perform analytics on it, and get higher rates for your advertising. So I think from Google's standpoint, that would be the rationale to to buy into it. So uh, this, of course, uh, just to give you some sense of the details here, New York Post reporting uh, that Alphabet was recently in talks with Dish Network about creating a fourth uh, U.S. mobile carrier, and this would stem from the uh, the whole issue of whether to create a new network uh, stemming from the T-Mobile uh, Sprint tie-up and Google is saying, no, this isn't happening. Well, let's uh, clarify for a sec. So Dish has already said they're going to build a 5G wireless network from scratch. But with the T-Mobile Sprint deal under pressure from regulators, one of the concessions is rumored to be the sale of Sprint's prepaid business. And that would open the lane for uh, Dish and Google to get into the business. John Butler. Always a pleasure. So Thank much you. to talk about. John Butler is Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence.
There is a big question as a number of investors focus on companies and say, hey, we want you to do the right thing. What does it mean to do the right thing? And joining us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Joey Bergstein, Chief Executive Officer of Seventh Generation. Uh, he normally uh, is based in Burlington, Vermont, but here in New York today. Uh, seventh Generation, of course, if you ever have had a child and bought diapers for them and want them to be more environmentally sustainable, uh, Seventh Generation has that as well as cleaning products and other household items. Joey, I want to start with, I know that you have been very active in lobbying for responsible environmental uh, policies in Washington, D.C. What is the uh, most basic step that companies could currently take to make themselves uh, better for the environment? I think the most important thing is for companies to take accountability for the impact they're having on the world around us. So we as a company, we've got a mission which is about transforming the world into a healthier, more sustainable, more equitable place for the next seven generations. It's not just about selling more eco-friendly home and personal care products. Of course, that's really important. Um, but what we really want companies to do, and starting with ourselves, is to take accountability for the impact that we have on the world. So uh, starting with an internal carbon tax, taxing yourself on the pollution that you're putting out into the world around us, taking a stance in the industry and trying to have an impact to move to move all companies to take that kind of a stance. We think that there's, well, we know that there's a real consensus today, not just around climate change, with climate scientists have a consensus on, but that the economists around us also have reached a consensus that the best way to address climate change is, in fact, through carbon pricing, which is very simply just companies being held accountable for the pollution that they create. How much do you feel like an outlier uh, in terms of a company taking these actions? Because we've heard from a number of big companies, whether it's Nestle uh, or, or, or Coca-Cola, that they're trying to do the same. I mean, do you feel like there is an earnest effort uh, on behalf of, of the world's biggest corporations to do what you're doing? Yeah, well, rather than outlier, I prefer to think about us as a pioneer. Um, but Interestingly, we were with um, Ceres, which is a tremendous organization that's pulling the business voice together around the need for climate change. We were together in D.C. There was over 100 CEOs getting together to, to talk about the change that we need to create. It represented over $3 trillion worth of revenue, over 700,000 employees represented. So I would say we are definitely not at the fringe that more and more businesses are waking up to the need to actually take these kinds of stances and have an impact on the world around us. So what are some of the next uh, innovations that you expect uh, with respect to both uh, housing products as well as how to create them in a sustainable manner? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of innovation around how do we reduce the impact that we're having around uh, in the world around us, particularly around plastic and eliminating the plastics. Um, we're doing some work right now in concentrating our laundry detergent uh, into a for the for the same amount of loads, so 66 loads delivered through 23 ounces instead of 100 ounces. So that uh, means 70% less plastic, 60% less. Um, uh, sorry, 70% less waste, 60% less plastic, 50% less water. All those things reduce the environmental footprint of, um, of the products that we sell and want to see other companies taking similar kinds of stances. Could you see a realistic scenario in which uh, consumer goods companies did eliminate plastics in the near future? I think so. I really? think we're, yeah, I think we're, all, we're seeing it's not going to happen in, the, in tomorrow, 
Um, but I think we're seeing companies across the spectrum looking at how can they eliminate the plastics, the single-use plastics associated with the products that they make. The issue, though, is not necessarily just plastic. The issue is plastic waste and really creating systemic solutions to address the waste that we're all faced with today and to take that out of the world around us. Meaning basically coming up with innovative ways to recycle. Is that the idea? I think so, and making recycling systemic. So today only about 30% of plastic gets recycled in this country. If we can move it up to 100%, that addresses a huge amount of the issues that, we are, that we're faced with today. Just real quickly here, I'm wondering, how do you pair the idea of having this important mission while squaring that with making money and offering products that people want to buy and, you know, trying to uh, have the, the highest quality of goods? I think the two go hand in hand. I think people really respect companies that are taking a stance and doing the right thing, that are a champion for their rights. And we see that paying back with with loyalty, with people really appreciating our brand, our products, and the difference that we're trying to make in the world. And I think when you stand up for consumers, they stand up for you. Joey Bergstein, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Joey Bergstein is Chief Executive Officer of 7th Generation, uh, joining us here in New York. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. We are watching Deutsche Bank shares off earlier lows, which have been down nearly 7%. I'm looking at the ADRs, the American Depository Receipts. Uh, right now, shares uh, in the U.S. trading down 5.2% as those 18,000 job cuts uh, begin. Joining us now from London, Elisa Martinuzzi, a columnist covering finance for Bloomberg Opinion. Elisa, thank you so much for being with us. Before we get into the details of the plan, what is the mood like uh, that you're hearing about among some of the people who are being told today they will no longer be working at Deutsche Bank? I think it feels a little bit like Deutsche Bank's Lehman moment, right? You have um, hordes of, of traders and, and bankers that are being told um, to go as the bank starts cutting these 18,000 jobs. So in total, about 20% of the global workforce. Um, so yes, that, that's kind of how it feels internally at the moment. And it contrasts with um, a somewhat upbeat tone that the management has tried to uh, to convey today. They're keen to show the bank is finding, is reinventing itself. It's finding its new North Star, so to speak, um, which is going to be, you know, significantly away from the trading floor. So, Elisa, why are shareholders not buying this? Why are they uh, why are they selling this news? And you're seeing it in the bonds, too, that were initially higher, but now they're lower. Why is everybody so pessimistic about the uh, efficacy of this plan? I think there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, there has been a drip feed of information for the last three or four weeks about what this plan would look like. So, you know, there was a little bit of news um, in terms of the, the, the magnitude of the bad bank and the, the you know, the, the potential for how much the bank can return to shareholders over time. So that should have provided some upside. But I think a lot of the expectations have already been priced in. And secondly, I think investors are concerned about 
the um, the credibility of this plan with regards to the execution risk. Uh, there's a lot that needs to happen for this to work. The downsizing of the of the bad bank needs to happen, um, and revenue at the core bank or the bits and pieces that the Deutsche Bank intends to maintain also needs to grow. And that's where you know the bank has failed miserably over the last few years is to grow revenue. So I think investors are pricing in those concerns as the day progresses. So where does Deutsche Bank plan to increase revenue, especially as they cut their equities unit almost entirely and, uh, and at least uh, stick with their debt unit that has actually underperformed recently? That's right. I mean, I think one way to describe it would be a sort of a pivot away from servicing financial services clients such as hedge funds to a greater focus on on servicing customers such as German companies. This is basically seeing the bank going back to its roots, to where you know to what it was doing when it was founded in 1870, which is financing German industry. Um, so it's, it's going to be more of a corporate lender and. Equally, is going to be um, trying to expand existing businesses in, you know, private banking, wealth management, and asset management. One saving grace potentially for Deutsche Bank is that reaffirming its mission as a German lender catering to German companies, perhaps they will get increasing backing from the German government and there'll be pressure on companies in that nation to really rely more heavily on Deutsche Bank for some of the the things that they need done. Do you think that that's a positive for Deutsche Bank going from here? I think, I mean, that's an interesting question. One of the analysts asked um, on, on the call earlier, you know, how, why is it that they expect to make more money to grow in Germany? Um, how can they possibly be gaining market share when obviously they are, you know, a large German bank to begin with? Um, you know, that might reflect partly the fact that they have been um, less focused on some of the clients, particularly the small and medium-sized businesses, and also, but also some greater confidence from clients that the bank is, you know, is here to stay, it's stable, and it's going to be looking after them because, you know, it has effectively shunned those types of customers for a very, very long time. Just real quick here, Lisa, in in 20 seconds, which banks are going to be the biggest gainers uh, from Deutsche Bank's exit of certain businesses? must keep your eyes on BNP, of course, which has a preliminary agreement to take on a part. We don't know how much of their equity business, so we'll definitely want to hear more about that over the coming days. Elisa Martinuzzi, thank you so much for being with us. Elisa Martinuzzi is a columnist covering finance for Bloomberg Opinion, coming to us from London. Definitely a somber day uh, on Deutsche Bank floors where people are packing up their things, uh, getting notices saying that they will no longer have a job at the bank as it cuts nearly one-fifth of its workforce in an attempt to shore up its profitability and create a leaner and more sustainable uh, framework to go forward with. When there's too much gloom and doom among fund managers, some people point to a jobless rate in the United States uh, that is near its all-time lows. The question is, do those numbers really reflect reality? Joining us now is Lakshman Achuthan. He is co-founder and chief operating officer of the Economic Cycle Research Institute. He is also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who penned a column I found fascinating, uh, the myth of the tight U.S. labor market. So Lakshman, Thank you so much for being with us. Can you start by why do you call the tight U.S. labor market a myth? Well, uh, Lisa, thanks. Thanks for having me. And the reason uh, I call it a myth, well, look, 
it's a it's a ten year long expansion. There's been a lot of jobs growth over those ten years, uh, and that is all well and good. I'm not taking anything away from that, but. At ACRI, uh, Economic Cycle Research Institute, we're, we're studying cycles, the, you know, the, the acceleration and the deceleration uh, in the economy. And we uh, currently are in a slowdown where growth is actually decelerating, and, and it's possible for that to happen even when you have the unemployment rate uh, near half-century lows. And, and that's what we were getting at in the op-ed that we penned that came out on Friday, and it, it, right in the in the wake of a of a stronger than expected jobs report. So why do we say that? We say that because we're looking at uh, a lot of different coincident measures of employment activity, and collectively they're actually decelerating. Uh, if you look past the headlines of the unemployment rate. Uh, or even the the headline jobs growth numbers, you can see that. And that's what we present uh, in that op-ed. So there's a question that I had as I read the piece, which is the labor force and and understanding, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, how big it is, the direction of it, and what the underemployed or unemployed population is uh, of people who are of working age who just have bowed out or have gotten discouraged. Do you have a sense of that? Yeah. And so um, for listeners and and, and for everybody, uh, just a couple of basics. There's all these different types of employment statistics that non-farm payrolls number you hear is from the establishment survey. Uh, When we get into the labor force, we're looking at the household survey. And um, through May, which is uh, the data that we had when we were uh, writing the op-ed, the household survey showed the number of unemployed uh, had dropped by over 400,000, or 6.5% this year. Uh, And the number of employed had also fallen by a couple of hundred thousand over the same time frame. So the sum total, 400 and 600, was uh, showing the labor force had actually dropped by almost 600,000, or a third of 1% this year. Now, with the June uh, data in hand, um, we see that it's not quite as large of a drop, but it's still dropping by about a quarter of a million this year. And that is showing weakness. What, but is that weakness? I mean, could that be people retiring because there is an aging uh, workforce and population in the United States? I mean, how do you determine what that means? Sure, sure. No, no, no. Well, month to month, there's just gyrations in data. So you, you are wanting to look at longer term trends. With people retiring and, and other structural shifts in the labor force, that's over many, many years. The time frame that we're operating with when we're looking at cyclical moves is on the order of a few quarters. And that's why we're saying, hey, if you look at this year in the jobs data, you see deceleration when you look at, don't pick on any one, look at them all together, which is what we do in a coincident employment index. And we see that that's been decelerating its growth rate. It's still growing. It's growing slower. Right. And there's, there's another statistic out there um, that I think is almost um, – more important, although it gets um, very, very little attention. Uh, and, and that's this, uh, it's also from the Labor Department. It's the quarterly census of employment and wages. And so unlike the jobs report, which are surveys, right? They're, you're, you're trying to very quickly count 
um, how much has happened in the past month. This quarterly census, it's, a, it's, it's less frequent, so they can actually go out and count rather than surveying. Um, and we believe that it, it actually shows you a truer trend of what's going on. And, and for listeners and for everybody to understand, when they do the benchmark revisions to the establishment survey data, the yeah. headline data that everybody keys off of, they revise it to agree with the quarterly census. And, you know, I know a lot of guests don't come on and say, we should look at this half-year-old data uh, because everybody's very fixated on the freshest data, what happened with the jobs report. Um, but it's here, it's very, very telling. And what you see is this, this they call it the QCEW, or the quarterly census employment and wages. Yeah. And it shows a sharp deceleration in jobs growth. So um, right now, it's probably, it's, 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 it's suggesting that the establishment survey is overstating the real numbers by about 25%. Wow. That's so that's, again, we're still growing. We're just not growing as fast as these headlines are saying. We're actually decelerating. And it's that rate of change, which is super important for business managers or I'd say investors, you know, because that's going to be related to um, profits growth. Yeah. So, uh, Lakshman, just uh, just about a minute here. I- I'm wondering, can you look into your crystal ball, given the de- deceleration, it still isn't bad, we're still growing. What does that mean in terms of when the economic cycle will end or, you know, whether we're actually running out of steam enough to enter some sort of downturn in the near future? Well, okay, so we're decelerating. This is the fourth growth rate cycle slowdown, which will include slowdowns in in jobs since the recession. Uh, We had one in uh, 2010-11, 2012-13, 2015-16, and we're having one now. So right there, you see that it doesn't have to end. The slowdown does not have to end in recession. Although every time you have a slowdown, by definition, your recession risk is, is starting to rise. So I know a lot of people have said that, you know, they think a recession is this year, next year, whenever. We don't see, uh, we don't even forecast that way. We look at our leading indexes to see if a window of vulnerability has opened up where any shock can cause a tip us into recession. That hasn't happened yet. But uh, until the leading indicators turn back up, we have to remain super vigilant and, and we're doing that. So more bottom line is more slowdown ahead, but a recession is not guaranteed yet. Lakshman Ajithan, thank you so much for being with us. He's co-founder and chief operating officer of the Economic Cycle Research Institute, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. His latest column, uh, which came out Friday, The Myth of the Tight U.S. Labor Market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.